It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Cornelius Grove, and we're getting into the topic of how culture impacts childhood, parenting, different learning styles, and essentially how we raise people and the nuances in which different cultures, their children. And I imagine this might have a ripple effect into different stages of life. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I enjoy learning about culture and psychology and different ways of approaching life. And even though I'm not a parent, I am very interested in parenting. I know there are many parents that listen to this show. So I am looking forward to what can be revealed from Cornelius today. Thank you so much for joining. I would love to start hearing a little bit about your background. What led you to doing this work and writing multiple books on the subject matter? Well, hello, Whitney. I'm very happy to be included on This Might Get Uncomfortable. As I told you earlier, I like the title of your series. Well, there's not much worth talking about about my upbringing. I wasn't taken out of the country, but I think I can safely say my parents were internationally minded. We had guests sometimes from other countries. And somewhere along the way, I realized that I was very interested not so much in individuals and how they tick, but I was interested in groups of individuals, face-to-face groups, cohesive groups, whether it's a family or all the way up to a nation or a city or a neighborhood or a block or an extended family. This is what really interested me. And I won't go into some of the experiences that led me to that. But as a young man, before I was married and after I was married around the age of 30, I did spend some time abroad. In fact, soon after we got married, my wife and I spent two years abroad, not working. We had saved up our money. We're in our early 30s. And we just went abroad for two years and we lived in different places. And my wife's from England, so we spent some time in England and so forth. And where were you living abroad? What countries were you in? Well, we a year of that two years, we lived in Portugal. We lived for six months in the Algarve, which is the southernmost region of Portugal. And we lived for six months in the Azores, which is in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And it's also Portuguese. And then we crossed Africa in a Land Rover. I shouldn't say Africa so much as the Sahara Desert. Interesting place. Pretty warm there. We also went swimming in the Sahara. You can go swimming. What do you call it? Oases. Yeah, we stripped off and went swimming. But after I graduated from college, long story short, I ended up as a teacher. Both of my parents had been educators. My mother was a classroom teacher. My father was a superintendent of schools. And I got into teaching, and I liked teaching high school in downstate New York in White Plains. Some people may be familiar with that place. And I decided that's not what I really wanted to do. I very much wanted to write. I had a feeling that I knew how to write well, and I was interested in trying my hand at that. 
And so again, I'll skip over a lot of details here, but I ended up as an editor in some publishing houses here in New York City. And in the second publishing house, I ended up with my wife came to work there. And so we got acquainted and we decided to get married. And then we went abroad. And when I came back, I went back to university. I went to Columbia University. And my original plan was to become a guidance counselor. But again, skipping over some stories here, but I had a chance encounter that convinced me that I wasn't enjoying the study I was doing to be a guidance counselor. And I had a chance encounter with a professor and I changed my major the next day to study anthropology and international education. And so that's the path that I've been on ever since. I did get a doctorate from Columbia and I ended up teaching there for about a year as an adjunct, maybe a year and a half. And then I went to work for American Field Service. Some of your listeners may be familiar with AFS, AFS International. It's a student exchange organization. And I went to work there and I worked there for 11 years. I was basically their resident scholar. That was never my title, but that's what it worked out to be. And then I decided I wanted to open my own business. And so I did. On January 1st, 1990, I founded and began a company called Cornelius Grove and Associates. And the purpose of the company was to deliver cross-cultural services to corporations. Just a few days before that date, I met somebody who's close to me in age, a woman who is an anthropologist. And we decided to go into business together. So again, just to skip over about 30 years here, we ran this company as partners for 30 years. And it ended on the last day of 2020. So actually, it lasted exactly 31 years to the day. But as we got into the 2000s, I felt that this was great. I was enjoying that work and the business was doing well. It was always a small consultancy. But I wanted to write. I really wanted to write. I already had written one book with co-authors on China because I got to spend five months in China as a visiting professor at a Chinese university. And out of that, with a Chinese scholar who was also interested in the intercultural field, we wrote a book together. And that's called Encountering the Chinese. It's interesting how your life has taken all these turns, some chance encounters with different cultures, different types of people, different lines of work. And I'm also curious how being a parent influenced this too, because it sounded like you started doing this work before you became a parent or after. When I was at Columbia, I guess we had our first child. And then later we had two more who were twins. After the book on China, the first book that I wrote one of the characteristics of American education, which is has to do with what people believe about how students succeed in school. Don't want to get off on that because it's also a fascinating topic. In case anybody's interested, the name of the book is The Aptitude Myth. But because I'd been in China and I was getting more and more interested in the fact that there are international tests of intelligence, which have been given to students internationally in the 4th, 8th, and 12th grade, ever since about 1970. And on every one of these tests, the East Asian students, that's China, Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, 
They are always at the top of the scores. The American students always are somewhere in the middle, rarely very much above the middle, sometimes below the middle. And this has never, ever been different, ever. Now, why is that? I believed that the explanation ultimately is cultural. So I decided to write a book in which I took a cultural approach to explaining the perennial fact that American students do not do well in international competitions. Doesn't matter what the topic, doesn't matter what the year, they're always somewhere in the middle. The East Asians are always on the top. It turned out that I wasn't the only person who had been interested in this. This had excited the interest of many other scholars, many anthropologists, actually. So I started reading about this, and I found that there were really two reasons, two explanations. One of the explanation is, how are these students raised at home? And the other big difference is, how are they taught at school? I pretty soon came to believe that the number one explanation was how are they raised at home compared with how American children are raised at home. So I decided not to write one book, but two books. The first book dealt with what I think is somewhat more important, how they're raised at home. The name of that book is The Drive to Learn. That was published in 2017. The second book, looked at the other side of the story, which is how they're taught at school. And the name of that book is A Mirror for Americans, and that was published in 2020. So I'm going to take a break from looking at what happens to children in societies where school plays a major role in the life of the child and in the life of the family. I'm going to see how do children learn and how do they learn well in school. This is always the early grades, by the way. I always looked at what we would call primary school or elementary school. The reason is that things get very complicated in the upper grades. They change a lot. So let's not go into that. <laughs> we'll skip that. I'm tired of seeing how children learn in school. I want to see how they learn when there are no schools. And so I wrote a book proposal to my publisher. My publisher is Roman and Littlefield and accepted it right away. And that brings us to the book that we are mainly going to discuss today. And that book ended up being called How Other Children Learn, What Five Traditional Societies Tell Us About Parenting and Children's Learning, How Other Children Learn. And what are these five different societies? Yes, the five societies. And by the way, how do I choose these societies? Well, there's one thing that I absolutely had to have, and that is I had to choose a society, plural, that anthropologists of childhood had spent a significant amount of time with and had written a sufficient number of books and many journal articles and so forth because I myself was not going to visit those societies. I was relying on the work of professional anthropologists and other people who use mainly anthropological method is not the same method that psychologists use. Anthropologists, they go and they live there. They live there for months. Some of them live there for a year or more, and they become a part of the community. 
They learn the language, they get involved, they form relationships, and then eventually they leave and they write about it. They try to explain what makes this society tick. So I had to do this with anthropologists who are particularly interested in childhood. And the five societies I came up with, fortunately, each one on a different continent are these. One is a hunter-gatherer group in Central Africa. They're known as the Aka, A-K-A. Second group is in Latin America, in Peru. And this group raises animals, and they do so in the high Andes. They live out their lives between 12,000 and 16,000 feet in the air. And they raise sheep and alpaca and that kind of thing. And the name of that group is the Quechua. They're the heirs of the Inca. The Inca spoke Quechua. Then the third group is right here in our country, the Navajo. The Navajo have been studied extensively. There used to be a joke among anthropologists that said that the average Navajo family consisted of a mother, a father, children, and an anthropologist. And there was probably some truth to that. The fourth group, I hoped that I could study the Bedouin nomads of the Arabian desert, but there hadn't been enough anthropological work. I could not study them, but during the last century, they progressively, many of them left the desert and settled in communities on the edge of the desert in the Levant is where Israel is, Syria, Lebanon, that's the Levant. Wrote about the um, Arab families in the Levant region, the heirs of the Bedouin. Very interesting. And then the final group was in India. So I wrote about Hindu villagers of India. A lot of work has been done. A lot of anthropological work has been done in India. There's no shortage. And then in the course of doing this, of course, I became familiar with some of the other work by anthropologists who are looking at traditional cultures what might also be called in many cases indigenous cultures. 30 years ago, we were all getting used to not calling these people primitive. That's a term that shouldn't be used. Traditional is a good way to think about them. A traditional culture, first of all, is one in which either there are no schools at all or education is just beginning to come in so that almost none of the adults have been to school. Maybe the children now, for the very first time, are going to school. That was true, particularly of the Arabs in the Levant and in India. Schooling was coming in at the time the anthropological work was done. Wow, that's fascinating. Because first of all, through listening to you, I'm noticing how much ignorance I have about different cultures. And secondly, it really is. And it also just makes me wonder... Not being a parent, there's a lot of things that I'm not as up to date on right now, but I certainly hear a lot of discussion in the United States, where you and I both live, about school systems. And it seems like there's a lot of complaints about school. <laughs> and as I'm hearing you talk about traditional culture in which you said school isn't doesn't seem to be a big part of childhood or perhaps even adulthood, you said almost none of the adults had been to school and I'm I would say in, in, in many research, communities, like, it's 100%. No adult has been to school. They don't know what school is. And what is the reason? There weren't any schools. So they didn't have a need for them. Well, that's a very interesting question. 
a need. How does that need develop? Are the human race lived for many, many tens of thousands of years without school? So how come there's a need for school? Where did that come from? Exactly. It's interesting. When you study traditional cultures, you begin to figure it out. Schooling goes hand in hand with modernization. It's just that simple. The thing about it is, in a traditional culture, another feature of traditional culture is that people are engaged every single day with the natural environment. And why is this? Because they're raising their own food. I say raising, I shouldn't just say raising. They're hunting it, they're gathering it, they're fishing it, they're farming it, or they're husbanding it, meaning they are raising domesticated animals. Every day, this is how they get their sustenance. They don't do these things, they starve. And what a child needs to learn, a child is born and they begin to grow up, what do they need to learn? Do they need to go to school? No, they don't need to go to school. This is one of the problems in communities where none of the adults have gone to school. Schools begin to arrive and they don't understand. Why do we need this? If they see a need for it, it's because they figured out that if the child does well in school, he could go live in the big city nearby and earn money and send money back home. It's like an insurance policy for the family's abilities to survive, to have a wage earner. That's attraction. The problem is when a child goes to the city, he runs, and it's usually he, he almost always runs into manners that his parents and extended family are uncomfortable with. He runs into morals that his family is uncomfortable with, and he runs into maidens who his family is uncomfortable with. You know, there's this great tug, but I'm going off on a tangent now, so let's (laughs) Well, I love tangents because all of this is interesting. It's generating a lot of questions for me. I mean, it sounds like it comes down to a matter of survival, but what you're pointing down is how different cultures have different definitions of survival or different means of survival. Well, every culture has to eat. Right. We don't think about it much because we just run out to the local supermarket or call up and have somebody deliver it to our door. In those cultures, in traditional cultures, you got to think about where your food's coming from all the time. It's just that simple. And how people get their food is something that can be transmitted to children. They don't even need a classroom to do that. As a matter of fact, one of the most interesting things about traditional cultures and a big difference with our own culture is that the child doesn't need to be taught explicitly taught about the things that the family needs to know in order to survive, the child can watch and learn. And this is what they do. And one of the most interesting things about traditional families is that until a child is born, until that child is weaned, he gets very close attention from the mother. Not just because he needs to suckle her milk, but also because this is a time when many children, their health is at risk for a number of reasons. So they're very closely protected. But once a child is weaned, then in our society, when a child gets to be a toddler, 
the assumption is the parents are going to raise this child. I mean, it's not even a question. This is not even a subject for debate, right? It's your child, you raise it. You and your husband or you and your wife or whatever, you raise the child and you're responsible for the child. Traditional societies, not the parent's responsibility. Whose responsibility is it? Well, two things in most of these societies, one or the other or both of two things happen. Either the child is raised by a sibling, the next oldest sibling, or the child is basically turned loose into the group, the mixed age, mixed sex group of children that's roaming around the neighborhood. And they're just basically young child, which would be a toddler for us, is either being raised by their next oldest sibling, usually a girl, or is part of this children's group, or both. Now, we had a recent case, just we're talking about this in June 2023, and there's just been a very, very recent case that had a burst of interest from many, many people. And that is that four children, a small plane went down in the Amazon, in the Colombian Amazon, not the Brazilian Amazon. A small plane went down, and three adults died, including the children's mother, and four children survived. The oldest was 13, a girl. The youngest was 11 months, and they were lost. And authorities, once they found the wreckage, figured that the children had survived. There were clues, right? And they went looking for them. The children were lost for 40 days. What do you think would happen to American children, even very bright American children, children who made A's in school? They wouldn't have survived. These children survived. Why did they survive? Because it's more complicated than this, but the initial explanation is they survived because they're from a traditional culture. And they had grown up as to whatever ages they were in two ways. First of all, they were familiar with the forest. And the second is that they were being raised by their sister, their regular caretaker. It's more complicated than this. People listening who know this story in detail, but basically the older sister who was 13 years old was basically the person who had a large amount, a really substantial amount of the responsibility for raising these other children, including the 11-month-old who turned one during the 40 days. But this in a traditional culture is routine. How does a story like that resonate with you as a parent? Like when you think about when your children were that young <laughs> and wondering, they probably wouldn't have survived. Is that what you're assuming? Absolutely not. <laughs> they couldn't have survived. They just wouldn't have survived. These children knew about the forest and they knew what they could eat and so forth. Again, it's more complicated than this, I know. But basically, they were used to living here. They were used to being guided and raised and looked after by their 13-year-old sister, so they were able to survive. Now, I don't know if we want to get into the complications about this because their society, their indigenous society in Colombia was in the process that will take two or three generations, maybe even more, of transferring from being a traditional society to becoming a modern society. They were in the middle of that transition. How do I know? Two ways. First of all, when the children got to the hospital, the five-year-old and maybe even the next one up, they asked for books. They wanted books to read. Well, 
No thoroughly traditional child would want a book to read. They don't know about books. So these children had been, they were going to school and they were learning something at school. They were learning how to read. So, and the other thing, hey, they were in an airplane. (laughs) What were they doing in the airplane? (laughs) So they're in the position of moving from traditional to modern. And this brings up some of the complications were authorities figure that if they'd been out for another several days, they might have started dying. They could have been in much better shape. And what anthropologists have found that look at these traditional societies, such as the hunter-gatherers in Africa, for example, the hunter-gatherers, it's been concluded that by the time you are 10 years old as a hunter-gatherer, you can be left alone in the forest. 10 years old, you'll know what to do. This brings up thoughts about where we're headed as a society in the United States. The more you talk about this, the more I feel like without a judgment, but just a feeling is 10-year-old in the United States is probably more concerned with hanging out with their friends, playing video games, using devices. And I think it's sounding more likely that that's not creating a lot of resiliency. No. And it's our strength, maybe developing digital skill sets, but in our society is very based on digital skills. But we don't know how long that'll be around for. I mean, in the past few years, I think the shifts in the environment, the pandemic, certainly, they've revealed to me my own weaknesses. And I started to realize I don't have a lot of survival skills and I'm a full grown adult. And I became more and more interested in it because I wondered, we've had food supply issues, for example, and I don't really know how to grow food. Yeah. There are concerns about water you running out. How and to, how, you don't know how to exactly. hunt. You don't know what right. to gather. You no don't know idea. how to farm. You may have some basic idea how to fish. There's conspiracy theories that come up. Right, exactly. I mean, there are people that are very concerned that like, what if the electricity went out? Average person know how to survive for even a few days without electricity. It's a problem. These kids didn't have running water in the forest, but they did find water and they stayed in the vicinity of water once they found it. I think it's useful to look at traditional cultures like this for the simple reason that you begin to say, you look back at yourself and say, oh, wow, look at how they're raising these children. They turn them loose with the other children. Parents, they don't really get involved too much. Now, again, an exception. When it comes to manners and things like respecting elders and showing proper respect for grandpa and grandma those kind of things. Families are judged on the basis of how their young ones fit into the moral structure. But with the exception of that, all the other things about how to get along with other children and how to contribute to the family's well-being by helping out in various ways, that all those things that children learn in the majority of traditional cultures, they learn them by watching and learning. They do things trial and error, and when they think they can do it right, they start trying to pitch in with what the adults are doing. They want to pitch in. They want to be accepted by this group. These are the people who love them. These are the people they identify with, and they want to be part of that. This is something that we are pretty much lacking in this society. And it brings the question, why are we lacking it, and could we benefit from more of that? And even bigger question is like... 
we have a lot of mental health issues. You mentioned the word well-being. And researchers are doing studies now and slowly concluding like the digital lives that many of us are leaving are having a negative impact on our mental health. And everything you're describing today makes me feel like, wow, these traditional cultures sound so much simpler. Oh, they're simpler. But maybe that's oversimplifying all of it, right? So like, what are the pros and cons of modern versus traditional society? Uh there's just so many questions like this. And of course, the ones that I've taken an interest in have to do with how children become functioning, responsible, contributing members of their society. That's what I particularly interested in. And what situation we find ourselves in now is hugely different in myriad ways from the situation that traditional people in traditional cultures find themselves in. And this is why, by the way, we just can't copy their methods. There may be one or two things. For example, one of the things that I became very much aware of as I studied these five societies and wrote this book was that in traditional societies, children just almost effortlessly take responsibility. They share responsibility with the other family members for the family's well-being. They learn to do this in part just by watching and wanting to be a part of what's going on. And they do it because their parents begin to expect and encourage them to help out and assist in any way they can, beginning when they can walk. What can a toddler do to support the family? Well, in the morning, they get up, they have to build a fire to make their breakfast. The toddler can go over there and get some sticks and bring them back for the fire. Grandpa is here. He's old and decrepit, and the toddler can take him a cup of water. So starting off with these very, very simple things, from the moment a child can walk, they begin to be expected and encouraged to contribute to what is going on right now in this family to support its well-being. If they don't, they may just get a little switching on the back of the legs, you know. The parents make sure that they understand that they need to contribute. Everybody, according to their abilities, their mental abilities and their physical abilities, contributes to the welfare of an extended family in traditional cultures. Here, one of the biggest differences I came up with, here's the thing, Whitney, in a traditional culture, the children are needed. Think about this. They are actually needed in a practical sense. Everybody needs to contribute to the acquisition of food and other resources that the family needs. Their labor is needed. In this culture, we don't need children. I didn't say we don't love children. Traditional people and modern people love children. Only traditional people need children. They need them to work. And when the parents get older and begin to not be able to get around anymore and get into their old age, the children are needed to take care of the parents. They don't have old folks' homes. So children are needed in traditional societies, and they are not needed in our society. So what do we as adults and parents and grandparents in our societies do? Well, I'm reminded that in Rome, back in ancient Rome, the patricians, one of the problems they have was to keep plebeians from 
getting riled up and realizing that they didn't have the things that the patricians had, right? So there came to be an expression, and it's an old Roman expression, bread and circuses. You ever heard that? Bread and circuses. That that comes from ancient Rome. Well, what are we doing here with children? Bread and circuses. We are entertaining. So does that mean entertaining and sending them to school? Yes, school and (laughs) other things. I mean, I say entertaining, but some of it may be quite educational. We're taking them to museums. We're sending them to summer camp. I had a wonderful time in summer camp as a kid. I love sleepaway camp. Best thing. Wish I could repeat it all. But my parents sent me. Get me out of their hair for three weeks, you know. But we are taking responsibility for our children's lives. And now in your lifetime, and certainly in my lifetime, this new factor has come in where we're giving children handheld devices that mesmerize them. And they really do capture people. They take them over. They become the master and not the tool. But let's not get into that discussion. But my point here is that children don't have any real reason in our society to watch adults and learn. I think they do to some extent, okay? I think they do. But they have all these other things that we've made available to keep them busy, to help them get educated in many ways, to entertain them, to be sure that they have friends and play sports and all these things. None of this happens in traditional societies. The kids take care of themselves. They roam around. They figure out what to do. And what are they doing? The anthropologists finally figured out the kids are watching the ad. They're not always, not 100%, but they're watching the adults. They're trying to be like the adults. And they're anthropological intense. You see kids practicing what adults do. So given that they're spending so much time adding value and contributing, do children in traditional societies have much of a relationship with play or leisure, rest? What does that look like? In a traditional society, the distinction between work and play is weak. They don't really think this way. I mean, they may understand that this is play and that's work, but the line between isn't clear the way it is here. Because we have jobs, we go away, people are staying home now, but there's time when they work and time when they play. In traditional societies, that distinction is muddy and weak. The kids, they have a childhood, but they are being much more, in most of the traditional societies, they're being much more responsible. They're taking responsibility at an early age, not just for bringing twigs, but for raising their younger sibling. In Quechua land, children around seven and eight, and I think this is true of Navajos as well, they begin to be the ones taking the herd, the flock of sheep or alpacas or whatever, to take them to pasture and bring them back at the end of the day, seven or eight years old. Think about this. Those animals are the wealth of the family. That's their wealth. And you give that to the seven-year-old and say, take them to the pasture. We'll see you this evening. There are wolves. There are thunderstorms. There is lightning. I'm telling you, one of the things that I've come to really appreciate as a result of doing this book is that children are far, far more able mentally and physically and in terms of capabilities to actually do practical things Not academic things, okay, but practical things. They are far more able than we in this society tend to give them the opportunity to do. They take responsibility. 
I'm curious with that kind of realization, would you have raised your children any differently? How would that have impacted you? Because your children are grown up now. It sounds like you've learned and studied so much since then. And as a parent, do you have different perspectives now? And do you give advice or resources to parents in this modern world where they well, let's, could benefit let's put it from, this way. from this somehow? There is a school of thought. There is a movement. I think we can use the word movement in the United States. It's not a big movement like political movements that we're hearing so much about. But there are a group of thoughtful adults who, in one way or another, are devoting their professional lives and their abilities to saying to American parents, you don't have to ride so herd so closely on your children. You can give them more freedom. Now, how far can you carry? This gets complicated. But traditional children learn to take care of themselves. Their parents aren't keeping watch over them. Their parents are doing the adult things. The children are doing their children things. What are the children things? Some of those children things are trying to be like the adults. And so because they're expected to contribute, even to the point of taking full charge of their younger sibling, in the Colombian jungle, the grandmother said about the oldest girl, when the mother goes away to work, the oldest girl has charge of these children. You know, I said that they're on the cusp between going from traditional to modern. In a real traditional society, the oldest girl would be taking care of the children. That's it. Except, as I said, for morals and manners, where the parents get very involved there. That's important. The family is judged on that. But in terms of the kid's behavior and learning to do this or that, parents are less involved. So we cannot just copy these things and paste them in this society. But we can look at them and say, well, gosh, we spend so much time and so much energy and so much money looking after our children. Maybe we could rethink that. What if these children are more capable than we have been assuming they are, right? And I don't know what question you come up with. By the way, here's something I almost forgot, but I don't want to miss this. In our own society, we do have still one segment of our society comes close to living in a traditional fashion. And these are family farms that raise animals. This is the best upbringing I think that a child can have because, hey, you're three years old, you still can go get the eggs, right? You gradually become a part. You help to take care of the animals. You can help to feed them and bring in the food from the fields, whatever this family's doing. But a family farm that raises animals is the closest we come in this society to a situation that is similar to that of a real traditional group, such as the Aka hunter-gatherers or the Quechua highland herders or the Navajo, for example. Well, that makes me want to give more gratitude to my upbringing because we didn't uh, raise animals for food. I grew up on, oh, on good a, for a you. horse farm and learned a lot of responsibility. I mean, I feel like it's good for my parents, like my mother's passion for animals had a massive impact on my life, but I've never thought about it that way. 
I certainly had to learn a lot of responsibility, but I didn't like it. And that's kind of interesting. I mean, maybe that's why we ended up where we're at. I mean, who wants to get up super early and clean out the horse stalls and feed them? And I always associated that with just grueling work. And it almost feels like a way that I can relate to kids now where we've created so much in our modern society to make life feel really easy and convenient. And yet with all the mental health issues we have, is that the cost we pay for all that convenience is the fact that most people don't have to wake up and take care of the animals and be out in the thunderstorms shielding themselves from wolves like you described. And that sounds really nice and safe. But is that in our best interest? One of the things I came across as I was researching this book is that sociologists and anthropologists figure that there was sort of a golden age of American childhood, and it came after child labor was outlawed. So that would be like the 20s. And then there was a time when probably the mid-50s, somewhere around there, for some reason, and I can't explain this reason, but parents took more control of their children. They began to look after them more closely to monitor their behavior. But there was a period in there where maybe this is because schools got harder. I don't want to speculate about that. But there was this golden age where kids had a lot of freedom. Most of them didn't go to work and they weren't overburdened with school and with parental oversight. I'm happy to say that I am old enough so that I just caught the tail end of that. I was 82 years old yesterday. So I was born before Pearl Harbor in 1941. And I can say that in my early years, I had quite a lot of freedom to go out and cross streets and go into the nearby woods and be with my friends and be out from under constant parental care. And I also got sent to a farm in the summer. My aunt and uncle had a farm, a working farm with animals. And that was great. I loved that. I wonder, it sounds um, out of the ordinary. It also made me curious about, you grew up near Amish country well, or in we, Amish country, no, you were sharing we, we with me. And it seems like, is that one of, okay. But would you say the Amish, are they considered a traditional culture based on how they they live? They're maybe like that group in Colombia. They're sort of in between. They're still plowing. They're still using animals. Mm -hmm. They even plow with the animals. They don't want to use cars and other modern devices. But inevitably, they are immersed in the larger society, which is very modern. So they have to work their way through that. But in many ways, they're a traditional culture. And it's fascinating. Some documentaries and such that you can watch about, they have that opportunity at a certain age for the kids. They can go, I forget what it's called. They can go out into the That's 17, yeah. The modern That's society brilliant. and decide and, you know, for some themselves. Some of them don't come back. <laughs> yeah. What is it that causes someone to shift from traditional to modern? Like, is it the pull of pleasure? Is it well, the desire to be free from certain forms of labor? Like what is it I'll that get back drives to what I said. That? We go through human history, starting way back. There came to be a time when some humans had good ideas about how to do things in a better way. And increasingly, these ways were what we would call technical. They had details. And it would be virtually impossible for a child just by watching to learn to do it. And so there came to be a time when adults needed, in order to have some children who knew how to do certain things, they had to bring them together and make a deliberate effort to teach them. And those technological things are the beginning of modern life. 
So we've become now highly technological, but let's not use the word education. Let's use the word instruction. In order to do these more complex technological things, people need to be instructed. That means we need to bring them together and formally sit them down and put them through a course or whatever you want to call it. At the end of that course, they need to be proficient or we say, well, you took the course, but you can't do it. In other words, they failed. And as things got more and more technological, as more ideas came in about how we can do better ways of farming and how we can do better ways of fishing and how we're going to write, people came up with the idea of writing. This needed to be taught. And then we started having cities and begin to think about infrastructure. These are all technological things, and they had to be taught. People had to be instructed. So modernization and instruction, or what we usually call education, are hand in hand. This is one reason why one thing about modern children, American children, no matter what else might be true, they must go to school. They cannot survive in this society without basic numeracy and literacy. And there isn't any if, and, or but about this. This is it. You're a child in this society. You must go to school. Your life depends on it because we are so incredibly technological now. And when you look at traditional societies as I have, you begin to really see all these huge differences that come with modern industrialization. And they're massive changes that absolutely require instruction. It's so fascinating to hear all of this because it's really expanded my awareness and shown how much of a bubble I feel like I've lived in because you only know what you know, what you've experienced, what you've lived, what you've learned. And conversations like this are so interesting because it feels so expansive. It's like there's a way of living well beyond what I've ever known. And that doesn't mean that my way of living is right or wrong or, or good or bad, better. Aside from where we began this conversation, I think in America and, and similar societies, we pride ourselves on skill sets and intelligence. And so when we started this conversation, you were talking about the intelligence of other countries being so much higher. And well, uh, I'd love let's to circle back to that. Yeah. Okay. It's not right to say intelligence. It's right to say that they have been instructed and they have done a better job of learning that instruction and being able to apply it to actual practical problems. Don't say like intelligence because and, that means yeah. native intelligence. Mm -hmm. And every attempt that's been made to show that whites are more intelligent than blacks or West more intelligent than East, you know, than Orientals. No, all those attempts have failed. I understand about individual differences, of course, but on the societal level, no group of people is more intelligent than another group of people. But given that intelligence, some people work harder to learn it and master it and gain those skills, whatever the skill might be. And when we compare them through international testing, we find that East Asian children always are better at demonstrating those skills than American children. 100% of the time. It's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting. Like, why is it embarrassing? After this conversation, I think, how much does standardized testing matter? I mean, are we trying to survive? Are we trying to make more money? Are we trying to prove our value, our intellect? Like, what is important to us, I think, is well, at are, the conclusion of this. Like, what matters to us? These are big questions. So the thing about it is you said you feel been living in a bubble. 
I would say to you and say to any of your listeners, if you want to really begin to get a broad feeling for just how varied life can be, you got to start reading anthropology. I'm sorry, get away from the psychology. Psychology looks at individuals. Well, we're very oriented toward individuals in this society. I think it's maybe part of our problems, but let's not get into that discussion. But if your objective is to sort of get a larger sense of life, then anthropology is just absolutely fascinating to read. You just see all the many different ways that people can be human. They can be human in the forest as hunter-gatherers. They can be human in Los Angeles and New York City as people having a virtual conversation. We're being human. And they can be human in the high Andes. There are just so many ways. And anthropology is the ticket to get there because anthropologists go out and they live there and they watch and learn and have conversations and build relationships and they come back and tell us all about it. Well, you have certainly sparked my interest in that. And even just the way you phrase that is showing me in so many ways. It's like there's all these different worlds out there within the same world. And I have been so focused on psychology. And and yet my aim is not to be focused on the individual. My aim is to understand how different people live. And and I really haven't spent that much time studying anthropology. And you've done such a beautiful job in inspiring that and, and sparking that interest for me today. And I, hopefully the listener feels the same. <laughs> and not just because now you're interested in it, but I think you will also find it fascinating. It's really interesting. I agree. It's very <laughs> fascinating. And I'm curious for you before we wrap up the conversation, so what's the next book that you want to well, write? Because you've written three or four well, now. Well, mainly five. Five? Yeah. <laughs> one was about China. And mm -hmm. then there was the one called The Aptitude Myth, which had to do with how we think about learning in this culture. And then there were the two that looked at how East Asian children learn. One book looked at how they're raised at home. One looked at how they're taught in school. All of this at the lower grades. Then the, my most recent book is How Other Children Learn, which looked at societies in which there aren't any schools, or schools play a very minor role. And now I'm writing a book. I'm under contract to write a book for teachers, classroom teachers. Now, in this society lately, there's been a lot of ferment, especially since George Floyd was killed. And among educators, there's a huge push to get people to adjust their mind and adjust their heart so that children who are from different backgrounds and look different and sound different and are from different backgrounds coming into schools can be made to feel welcome there. And that's good. And there's just one book after another about this. It's just amazing. A huge flood of books trying to help educators be more open, more welcoming, and not to ever, ever think that some kid, because he looks different, doesn't have the same amount of intelligence. This is why I jumped when you said intelligence. It's not about native intelligence. You may have heard of the three-way division between head, hands, and heart. Have you familiar with that? So these books that are coming out by the literally by the dozens now are addressing educational issues, multicultural education issues, from the head and heart perspective. Almost nobody's writing about the hands. That is to say, now the kid is in your room, you're supposed to teach them math 
or English or science or history or whatever it is, academic subjects, and they don't think about education and instruction the way you do. They disagree about how this classroom should operate. What about that? Nobody's writing about that. I am. That's my next book. Wow. That also sounds fascinating. It is fascinating. Your passion for this is contagious. (laughs) And it's just so needed, I think, to expand how we relate to one another. I love the term adjusting or expanding the mind, heart, and hands, which is something that I'm not very familiar with. So I'm looking forward to that and very grateful for the work that you're doing, for the research behind it, but also the deep enthusiasm you have in supporting people and thinking through things differently and hopefully operating differently and at the very least being mindful that others live differently and that's okay. And then looking at them and asking, hmm, maybe I should revisit some of the things I'm doing, reevaluate. I'm not necessarily saying to people, you must change. (laughs) I'm saying, you ought to think about this. Yeah. Get a perspective. Look at yourself from the outside. Yes. That's exactly why you're such a wonderful guest on this show, because I want to do that. Yeah. It's like the anthropologist from Mars. Mm. You've come from Mars. You don't understand human beings at all. You come down here and, wow, what's going on here? (laughs) What are these people doing? Why are all these young people sitting around doing this? At least, but again, like (laughs) I think we can live in that bubble and think everyone's doing it. But what I've learned today is there's so much happening around the world that can be vastly different from our local experiences. and. And not just vastly different, but vastly different activities in vastly different circumstances, environmental circumstances, political circumstances, weather, climate, traditional people living in a forest are in an extremely different environment than we are. So what about that? That has to be taken into account. We just can't copy what they're doing, but we see another way of being human. And that's what it all comes down to, seeing another way to be human. Thank you so much for taking the time today. And thanks for the work that you do. It's really wonderful and important work. And like I said, very grateful to connect with you, but also grateful that someone like you is doing this work and pouring their heart into it like you are. And, And for the listener, if you would like to read the current five books and stay tuned about the upcoming sixth book... I will link to Dr. Cornelius Grove's work in the description of this episode, which is right there on your podcast player, as well as over at my website, wellevator.com. That's linked down below, and I'll spell it out for you. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And there you can find a full transcript of this episode, quotes, and all the resources that we've mentioned all in one place. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Dr. Cornelius, for being here with me today. (laughs) Thank you for including me. It's been fun. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.